yes, we need people to go and study the obscure species of bats in the ecosystem. But at the same time, I know scientists who have worked in the Amazon for 30 years describing the most incredible intricacies of the minutia of the, you know, single ecosystem types. How many acres have you actually protected? Hmm. Or have you just been writing papers on and on and on and on? Has it added to your own prestige? Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This is conservation like you have never heard it before. My guest this week is Paul Rosalie. Paul is a conservationist, a writer, a speaker and a filmmaker who is protecting 55,000 acres of the Amazon, which he first set foot in at the age of 18. Paul spent 10 years learning everything that he possibly could about the forest, about the people, about the cultures, about the problems and has committed his life to trying to protect one of the most important and beautiful places on the planet. But he's no passive conservationist. From listening to him, I would say Paul's an ardent activist with a deep love for wildlife that has blazed through a life dedicated to protecting the vulnerable. We discuss the gift of the Amazon, the species, the ecosystems, the cultures, the secrets. We discuss the illegal trades taking place within forests and the corrupt systems that facilitate them. Paul explains the limitations of typical conservation, that the law of man does not apply in the wilderness. And he gives a vision for what conservation could become, including, for a start, paying people properly to get involved. And for anyone who feels despondent about the scale of the crisis or crises that we face, Paul has a really clear message. Pick a thing and fight for it. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Paul, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So could you give um, a brief uh, history of your rather fascinating life story, um, which I think explains why you're here today? (laughs) A brief history of a series of strange events. Um, <laughs> for some reason, I was born in New York City and from a very young age was convinced and certain of the fact that I needed to be in wild places. And so as a child, I was in streams and forests and made my parents, you know, little little child, made my par- parents take me to the forest, to the streams. I wanted to catch turtles and that stayed with me my whole life and I hated school and I didn't get along in school. And so I had this dream of going to the Amazon rainforest. And by the time I was 17 years old, I got out of school, saved up my cash, bought a plane ticket, went to the Amazon rainforest and started working as a research volunteer. Wow. And uh, my parents made made me, I had to, the deal was I could leave high school, but I had to go to college. And then I fell in with a indigenous family in the Amazon rainforest and fell in love with it and started going on adventures. And when you get to a place like the Amazon rainforest, you require a certain amount of prerequisite knowledge to understand how vast the chasm is of what you don't know. Cause you mm. arrive, you look at it and you go, it's a lot of green. And then after you start learning the tree species and the bird species and the fish species and the frog species and the snake species, and you suddenly realize that there's medicines flowing through the, the bark of the plants and that there's orchids growing in the canopies, then there's entire worlds out there of species that no one's ever described to science or discovered or even been seen by a human eye. And after a few years of walking around barefoot with the natives, getting stung by everything conceivable, you start to understand, you say, oh, you know, it's kind of like if you were to take 
an advanced astrophysics class, you know, you might, most of us have no concept of, of what the, what the field involves. And it's like only after a certain point, do you start to say, okay, I understand the basic building blocks enough to understand how unfathomably ignorant we are. And so the mm -hmm. job was like that. You start opening worlds and worlds and worlds and worlds. And then you, and then you realize that six lifetimes wouldn't be enough to, to, to learn what you need to learn about the rainforest or what we need to learn about the rainforest before it's cut and destroyed. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I fell in with, uh, I found what I loved the most and what I felt was my direction and passion and calling very early. And then when we started to see the rainforest being taken apart, we sort of had this moment where we were looking at these ancient trees and I mean, skyscrapers of life where, you know, thousands of species on a single tree. And we started going, well, someone has to stop this. This madness can't go on. We can't just allow the conquest of paradise is destroy the most beautiful library of life in the known universe. And you, there's no one, there's no one who's going to stop it. And we were the only ones there is the middle of the Amazon. So we started working to protect it. And that's how we started jungle keepers. And now we protect 50 something thousand acres of rainforest in the Amazon. And we need to protect another 250 to save an entire river that contains millions and millions of wild heartbeats ancient trees, undiscovered medicines and, and indigenous cultures that are at extreme threat because of the development that's happening. And so, um, yeah, I've, I'm 35 now. I started this when I was 18 years old. And so I've spent my entire life working for one thing, and that is to protect as many wild heartbeats as possible. And who are you protecting them from? Who are the people coming in and logging those trees? Uh, a lot of times it's local people. Um, it's the it's the global systemic force of progress that's you know ancient trees are resources it's timber um there's mm -hmm. gold in the soil that people want and so it's just resource extraction it's just it's the world bank it's the imf it's china it's brazil it's the us it's everybody it's the markets but on the ground it's poor people who have families that need a job and they know how to use a chainsaw and they know the jungle and they know how to find the ancient hardwoods and so they go out and they cut the trees. And so what we've had to do is figure out a way to repurpose those intentions and say, okay, look, first, you know, like if I like make a Instagram post about logging in the Amazon, the first, first reaction people have is I'm embarrassed to be humans. These people are evil. Something needs to be done. Let's kill these poachers. Let's kill these loggers. And it's like, sure. Except for when you have a beer with these guys in the middle of the jungle at night, when their boat just got flipped and you realize they're not bad guys they're mm. just humans that need cash and so what we've started doing is as much as possible giving loggers gold miners jobs as conservation rangers which they're happy to do and a lot of these people are great so one of the most important takeaways that we've had initially is that the people that we thought were our enemies are just people that need help and that's why they're mm. That's that's fascinating because obviously at the moment the main um other direction for for um people who would like to extract some wealth from the forest but also still look like they're protecting them is putting them on the carbon market in order to sell carbon credits. But those have been shown to have a really devastating devastating effect on forests and communities as well. So hiring them as rangers is fascinating. Does that mean that they are protecting the trees from their sort of fellow ex-loggers absolutely yeah one of the, <laughs> some of some of the key members of our team used to be loggers and now they're mm. conservation rangers and boat drivers and all about protecting the place a lot of times they're people that absolutely love the place that they're cutting down a lot a lot of times you know they'll just shake their head and go oh this is a really beautiful tree mm. cut it down um because mm. they have to you know or they feel like they have to um, and in their reality, they do have to because they don't really have other job opportunities. Um, but yeah, so 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 exploring the Amazon, learning as much as we can, employing the local people, developing those relationships has become the thing. And so um, the fun part of my job is that in order to rally support, in order to be able to do this conversion and flip loggers and gold miners into conservation rangers, um, a, a large part of it is is communicating to people how incredible this place is and the best way to do that mm -hmm. is to go be as intimately connected to it as possible and so i've been going on 
wilderness solos and spending weeks on hunting trips with the local indigenous people um, and really going out and doing biological surveys of areas that no one's ever been before. And so that's the fun part of the job is just getting to go on these incredibly extreme adventures into remote, the most remote wilderness areas left on our planet um, in order to understand it better and communicate that to other people. You said um, that it could take 6,000 years and we still wouldn't learn everything that we need to learn from the rainforest. What are some of the lessons that we need to learn? Well, I mean, the first thing, one of the first things that, that will sort of slap you into silence when you get to the rainforest is like, you know, I hear all these people, 50% of people on earth live on, live in cities. All right. Mm -hmm. So most people are living in, in a, in a curated environment with concrete and glass and where you go to the store and you get your food. And so connection to the land and understanding of nature and really any sort of awareness that there's other species on earth goes out the window. And so we live day to day connected to our screens, connected to other people, connected to the bank, our cell phones, whatever. Our connections are, are, are strangely ruined. And so when you get to this place where natural law is the rule of the land, it's like, your skin will bake in the sun. You will freeze in the rain. Your boat will sink when the river rises if you don't do certain things. And so there's these sort of irrefutable truths of nature that you have to contend with. And so you are living in in a state of of natural purity. And so we have this this cycle that we watch. You know, the Amazon creates its own weather system. Mm. And so you can go to the river in the morning, bend down, drink the river. And hours later, as you start to sweat in the morning sun, you watch, you literally can watch the steam come off your skin, join what's rising off the canopy and become the far, the clouds that in the afternoon will start a thunderstorm and it will rain down and that water will rejoin the river and then you can drink it again. And you are part of that circle of life. And so in the Amazon, all of this, uh, all of these questions and all of this sort of ambiguity between science and religion sort of goes out the window because you're like, oh, I understand exactly what I am and where I am and what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm connected to all of it. And that's, you know, when you hear people talking now, I, you know, you just like you look at comments on the internet and you hear people, well, are we living in a simulation? Should we go live on a dead planet, Mars? Um, people have gotten very confused about the fact the only reason that we're able to live here is because the other organisms that we share this planet with have created a living environment that we are so interconnected with that it is laughable to think of us surviving anywhere else. I mean, yes, theoretically, we could go with a spacesuit and spend some time on Mars before our eyeballs got sucked out of our skulls by the atmosphere there, or we got frozen to death by 700 degrees minus temperatures. But like this living environment with oceans and water and warmth and sun and an atmosphere and food and soil and all this stuff. I mean, it's like taking a fish and throwing it on the concrete and being like, let's see if it lives. No chance. Mm. And people have forgotten mm. how we are. And I think that a lot of the feelings of being lost and purposeless that people feel are because we've lost connection to the very simple truths that we once knew. Um about being connected to nature. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I actually had uh, my first ayahuasca experience recently um, and it was really, really incredible and I won't go into detail because I already have a lot on the show. Um, but it really revealed to me just how interconnected we all are. In fact, we're all expressions of, of the same thing, of life. Um, and it felt like coming home, that realization and that awareness. And I agree with you that like, you know, the mental health problems, the dislocation, the sort of self-propagation of systems, which are fundamentally antithetical to well-being of our own species and the species with whom we share this planet. It's obvious that something's going wrong, but how do we, this is the, the bit I think that a lot of people get stuck on is when we have a population of 8 billion, which has increased from 1 billion in just the past, what, hundred years? Couple years how yeah. do we, yeah, how do we get everybody back to us a state of being in relation with nature, considering the world that we've built recently? Yeah, yeah I don't have the answers for that. I one of my big things uh, has become not 
um, concerning myself with every aspect of everything. Because if you look at, you know, it's funny. I just recently heard Jordan Peterson on a podcast and he was going, well, what does that mean that people are worried about the environment? That means they're worried about everything. And he's like very upset by that notion. And he's not 100% wrong because when you're saying, well, I'm, you know, concerned about the environment, it's like, okay, well, pick something because no, you know, if you, if you start to take on the burden of the entire global narrative, yeah, human, this, a lot of humans were destroying our natural systems, but yet whether you, wherever you live, Bangalore, Tokyo, New York, doesn't matter. You have some nature in your backyard. You have some agency over production, consumption systems. And so I've been lately really noticing that like where I'm from, in New York, we've had humpback whales coming back to right outside New York City because the water is cleaner. When I was a kid, you didn't see bald eagles because DDT was destroying their eggs and people stopped DDT and started that campaign. And now we have bald eagles back. And it's like humpbacks are almost back to whaling numbers. There's a lot of people that are planting indigenous plants and butterfly gardens to help the migration of the monarchs, to help the migration of hummingbirds. And it's like, you don't have to go try and save the entire planet all day long. Just like I have a lot of people in my life that are, God bless them, um, trying to save the world through their consumer habits and sort of playing this Green Olympics checklist of, you know, not using a straw and using a bike and using the right light bulbs, but not buying the right, the wrong type of clothing and eating vegan, but not doing this and checking all the boxes. And at some point it, it, it gets really confusing and you're worried about every single thing. And so to me, I've, I chose one thing. And, you know, like, for instance, like people will come at me and go, you know, you know, so you, you talk about saving the world, but you fly often. And it's like, yes, well, I have to get there. I have to do the work or else, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you have to come back and talk to donors and then you have to go out to the field and work with the locals. Those are things I have to do. You go fix Mm -hmm. the emission problems and the fuel, you know, fuel emissions of of airplanes. I, I can't do that and protect biodiversity at the same time. That's not what I could. And so um, to me, my thing has become, you know, mm-hmm. something that you can affect positively and then focus on that. Well, Do you not think that that's part of like the uh, hyper individualist, you know, siloing atomization problem that we see? Like everything in the world is sort of being cut into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And I think part of what you're, you're saying that you've picked one thing and focused on it. Yeah, sure, but through the lens of a bigger picture, through a bigger picture understanding. Because I think one of the problems maybe that the environmental movement sees is that people pick one thing and only focus on that thing ideologically as well. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah, that's a, I think, you know, what did they say? I think Jane Goodall just said it. She said, think globally, act locally. Mm. Yeah, take the whole thing into consideration, but don't freak yourself out about it. I mean, because then, you know, I could go, you know, I have, fr- I have friends whose who's calling is saving, you know, um, cats and dogs in the city. And it's like, sometimes I'll come off a little callous about that. And I'll be like, look, my thing is wild animals in ecosystems. And they're like, but don't you care about the kittens? And I'm like, yes, I care about the kittens. But like, you go care about the kittens. I'm going to go worry about, you know what I mean? Go do this. I'll go do mm-hmm. this. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want anything to suffer. I hope all the kittens are okay. <laughs> like, to me, it's like... <laughs> wild animals species that are are are, that are not dependent on humans that are creating these ecosystems whether it's whales or salmon or bald eagles or or jaguars or tigers or elephants that need protection that that have been around long before we were here um and so to me you know the fact that we're we're, we've lost 70 percent of the wildlife on this planet since you know in the last 50 years or something that's devastating that's absolutely yeah. So we're at this crucial moment in history where as a global society, we're never going to have the opportunity to change it in a positive, to steer it in a positive direction. That opportunity is never going to come again in history. If we lose elephants, if we lose polar bears, if we lose the species that are there now, you know, there's all these people that are like, oh, we'll just reanimate them through, you know, genetic engineering. We're going to bring back the woolly mammoths. It's like, yeah, sure. Until, until I see it, I won't believe it. And then even then people forget that animals have culture, animals have developed certain hunting techniques, ways of raising their young, that if you take a baby tiger out of the wild and raise it in captivity, it cannot be released. It will not survive in the wild. No tiger Mm. released into the wild and survived because they have to learn from their mothers how to hunt. 
And it's like, we have this way of simplifying animals down to like this, like almost like they're objects and people forget how intelligent they are. It's funny, isn't it? Because like ob objects, but also instinctual, instinctive. Yeah, and then that swings the other way as if like what's wrong with human beings is that we're not instinctive. So I know everything has culture. Everything that's in relationship with something else has culture and everything is in relationship with everything else all the time. So, you know, there are some amazing things about animals, like how salmon know how to swim upstream. I think I think about that regularly. Salmon just swimming <laughs> upstream. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Like it's amazing, but that's that is also cultural. It's not. It's there's not just you know these sort of instinctual drives as if as if the entire animal kingdom is on autopilot and yes. we are somehow you know superior. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Amazon then. Um, I think generally speaking, listeners of this podcast and many people around the world will know that the Amazon is in trouble. Yeah. Could you tell us exactly how much trouble it's in? Yeah, I mean, rainforests in general, I think it covers about rainforests cover about 6% of Earth's landmass and contain 50% of the terrestrial species we have. So you have a massively outsized influence that these these tropical ecosystems have. And as we lose them, we're losing species at an accelerated rate. So if we protect them, we we do a real good job of protecting species on Earth, the ecosystems that influence our weather patterns globally, as well as the source of undiscovered medicines of, I mean, the Amazon holds a fifth of our planet's fresh water and produce wow. a fifth of our planet's oxygen. If you were to suddenly scrape the Amazon off of planet earth, life as we know it would change drastically. And so the fact that for the last hundred years, say, especially in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, we've been seeing wholesale destruction of the Amazon to the point that we probably lost about 20% of the entire biome means that we are at a point where many scientists are warning that we could be reaching a tipping point in the Amazon where that moisture cycle is broken and the Amazon's not able to moisturize itself and create those rains. And then you'll see mass drying across the Amazon. And if the Amazon dries out and the moisture cycle is broken, then you see an ecosystem collapse that we can't reverse. And then you start to see the post-apocalyptic movie start where that planet Earth starts to really change. And so in the Amazon, it's like we have this incredibly vibrant, cacophonously loud hothouse of life where you have these giant ancient thousand year old trees that are literally skyscrapers dripped in life. And you have mosses, lichens, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, all living on these things, leaf cutter ants, sloths, harpy eagles, all contained in a single tree in the Amazon. And so yeah. you think about cutting that tree, you're losing entire worlds. And a lot of times, you know, people like to say, oh, you know, everything's been discovered. Everything's been explored. Mm, sure, yeah, we can take pictures of it from space. But if you look at one river in the Amazon and then there's 230 miles before the next river and in the middle of that, down beneath the canopy, 150 feet below the tops of the trees, you're telling me any scientist has been there and done a comprehensive biological inventory of what's existing there? No way. And so we mm -hmm. like to stride forward with this feeling of superiority like we figured it all out and it's like we're not even close the estimates for how many species are on this planet fluctuate by the tens of millions when you consider the fact that 50 percent of the life in the rainforest never even touches the ground and as humans you know walking around in the two meters above the earth 150 feet up you know 60 meters or something of canopy up there and we have no access to it unless you're an expert climber or unless you're one of the nut job scientists that started the uh they've gone in with hot air balloons and landed floats on top of the canopy and even then you can just poke your instruments down and grab a few samples but it's like for the most part it's inaccessible the vast majority canopy of the amazon rainforest is completely out of bounds to us and that's where most of the life is so we don't understand how it works up there it's a different environment down under the canopy is totally wet rainforest. There's swamps and rivers and all this stuff. And then when you go up to the top, you have cactuses and orchids, and it's a totally different arid environment. And there's monkeys and there's species of lizards up there that never touch the ground. And there's ants up there that have flange-shaped exoskeletons so that if they get blown off their tree, they can actually glide back to the tree. And there's all this crazy, crazy speciation happening up there that we have no concept of. Mm. It's year when we watch the Amazon burn, we're working as hard and as fast as we can to 
stop the destruction while this ecosystem is still functioning. We need this to survive. It's not asking a lot. 6% of the planet's landmass is, is, is rainforest and it's the Congo, it's Indonesia, it's the Western Ghats in India, it's the Amazon. These are incredible ecosystems filled with life. I mean, we love watching them every time David Attenborough puts out a planet Earth. Everyone's like, oh my God, this is so yeah. incredible. It's like, yeah, it's incredible. Um, let's make it be there for our kids. Yeah. And for ourselves. And for, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, it. there's no yeah, odds. Uh, so much of my motivation is just that I love it. Um, mm. It kind of almost seems counterintuitive to have to explain to people that without fresh water and without clean air, then nothing else you're going to. I think that's the Carl Sagan quote is the unless you can breathe the air and drink the water, then nothing else you're interested in is going to happen. You know, whether or not you like this stuff, if the, the, the destruction of ecosystems, the pollution of rivers, it's bad for business. You know, even if you're a, if you're just on Wall Street and all you care about is is the shareholders, destroying it isn't going to help. Mm. So tell me then exactly the business model of conservation. I'm interested. How is it that you've managed to protect fifty thousand hectares? Uh oh. Well, my method might not be the best method. It's it's not the traditional method. Um, I think traditionally. More traditional conservation is where, you know, you have a university go down and do a biological inventory and work with the government to set up a national park and or set up an indigenous reserve. And um, I've sort of taken a different slant to that where I just run out into the burning Amazon with an iPhone or camera and start screaming about how this can't keep happening and throw it up on social media and explain to people that. You know, the, the local people who've been working to protect this river that I work on, for example, have been there for 25 years working to protect their river with no resources, with no backing, with no hope of success. And, you know, I every now and then, you know, when people see me in the flames, see me screaming about, you know, the destruction of the Amazon, they'll, they'll say, oh, the work you're doing is so important. Thank you for doing this work. And it's like, yeah, we can do this all day long. But unless somebody gives us arrows in the quiver, there's no point charging out into battle. It's like we need the support. So what we do is we show people how beautiful it is. We show people how threatened it is. And then we try and get the donation dollars to go out there and actually protect the land, convince landowners that maybe instead of logging their land, that they could can turn it into a, uh, you know, a sanctuary and add it to part of our ecological corridor that we're supporting. And so we are transitioning people from loggers to gold mine conservation rangers. We're working with local stakeholders to try and update their goals from, I'm going to sell this portion of land that I inherited from my grandfather and just make as much money as I can to, I can manage it as an ecological preserve. And then that comes into, can we sustainably harvest Brazil nuts? Can we bring in some ecotourism? Can we, can we provide some sort of value that's not destroying the ecosystem? Cause a lot of times, um, we have a hard time quantifying the value of nature if we don't destroy it. You know, there's, I mean, the classic, you mentioned salmon. I mean, the best thing is for communities to still be dependent on salmon as their primary food source. And this is where, you know, it gets into the, you know, where I, I have a lot of people that are, that are moving harshly vegan. And to me, it's like watching the local people in the Amazon, they are very invested in the health of the rivers because they want to continue harvesting fish. And so they understand that if you damp mm -hmm. this river, if you pollute this river with mercury or have a gasoline spill, um, that resource is gone. And so the, the, the motivation and the catalyst to become conservation minded, it's not, it's not about protecting the, the pretty things. It's about safeguarding their own lifestyle because they're still tied to the land. And so with salmon, for example, like what rational people would allow an energy company to come in and dam a river that has a huge salmon run because you'd just be cutting off the industry that supports the fishermen, the industry that allows people to eat, the fish that replenish the ecosystem. It's, it's so counterintuitive to allow these environmental crimes to be disguised as some sort of progress. Um, and so it's like really like a whole re-education. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think the whole thing that we're seeing with late stage capitalism certainly is like it's very counterintuitive, the whole thing. But the problem from what I've understood, certainly in Southeast Asia, 
is the sort of abuse and exploitation of certain legal loopholes. Yeah. So uh, logging industries will sort of create documents that sign over um, land to one single landowner rather than a community. Um, and then bribe that person to sign over, you know, the, as in free prior informed consent. And then all of a sudden you've got swathes of land that are, you know, belong to indigenous groups or belong to local people, which, and there is this distinction, and maybe we should explain that to, uh, to listeners. Um, and, and then it's gone, you know, and it's logged and the government is essentially in on this corruption as well in most countries. And so they have nowhere to turn to. And then people that protest against the loggers, well, often they're killed. Certainly in Malaysia and Papua New Guinea, they're locked up in shipping containers mm-hmm. um, as warning men, women and children. So how are you countering those forces of power as well? Um, well, you got to be careful because, um, for example, one of the families on our river that was promoting conservation of the forest when the when they they cut a road in, and of course, it's for anybody you know anybody that knows about rainforests, you know it's like rainforest one hundred and one. As soon as there's a road, there's access because in a jungle with the trees and the the, the difficult mm-hmm. penetrating the environment, you're not getting in. So as soon as the heavy machinery cuts a road, all of a sudden the people come in, the forest gets burned, farms get set up, the animals get hunted. All of a sudden you have gold mining and logging. Road equals death in the rainforest. And so once we had a road come in. Uh, there was a family that lived right next to where that road came out into what used to be pristine wilderness. And um, one of my friends was actually trying to negotiate with the loggers. And uh, they actually, they had some down trees on trails and they'd hired them. And the loggers came in and actually just shot one of my friends in the back, killing him and then took his chainsaw oh my God. and left him. It's like, there, there is no law out there. You are past the edge of human presence on our planet. And so whatever happens out in the Amazon sort of happens out in the Amazon. A body disappears in a couple of days. And so they know this. Um, the lawyer that we work with uh, down there, his father was staunchly against the illegal gold miners. They shot him. I mean, there's environmental defenders killed every year all across the Amazon, all across Southeast Asia. Um, so we we have to... Uh, balance that one. I once I took ABC News into an illegal gold mining area and someone that was sort of on our side that was guiding us through the area came up to me and he said, just so you know, you see those gold miners over there? And I said, yeah, I see them. And he goes, those guys just mentioned you by name. And it's because of social media. He goes, they all follow you on social media. And now you're in their backyard. He was like, you might want to go. And I was like, mm. Um, so yeah, that's, we have to be careful with that. And so that's why actually with, um, with our rangers, a lot of people that have converted into being, uh, conservation rangers, we don't, we don't post their faces too regularly. We don't, we, the last thing we want is for the, you know, the logging mafia or the, the, the gold mining mafia or the narcos to, to identify these people as a threat. And then we're going to start losing people on the ground and things are going to get taken to a new level. So. Right now, everything's been pretty peaceful in our regions so far. I mean, how though? Because so many of these operations are illegal. I mean, you know, people will come in from anywhere and just start and just start taking trees. So just for, for context for you, Paul, so like I investigate logging in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And the main, most of these operations are completely illegal, do not have free prior informed consent. And they, it, it's fine because they know that they're backed by, you know, a corrupt elite who are equally sort of benefiting from the extraction of these resources. Yeah. Yeah. And our, on our river, what they do is loggers will come in, cut the ironwood trees. And now the ironwood trees where we work, um, I think it's Dipteryx micranthia. They, they're this gigantic emergent tree species that's incredibly old. You get mature ironwood trees from 600 to a thousand years old and the branches that fall off of them create holes in the ironwood trees. And Red and green macaws nest almost exclusively in the holes of ironwood trees. And in any given, I think it's in any given 100 acres of rainforest, there's only, you know, several ironwood trees that are old enough, mature enough, have the correct type of hole for these macaws to nest in. So there's a a limited amount of real estate 
that the macaw population can use to reproduce in a given year. And that comes down to about seven to 20% of the macaw population is able to reproduce because of the limited real estate. And so when you cut down an ancient ironwood tree, you're not just killing the macaws that are nesting in the tree that year, you're removing a macaw generation hub from the forest that's going to have impacts exponentially for the next thousand years until another tree takes place of the real estate that you removed. And so these loggers are cutting those trees, these precious giant hardwood trees that are also filled with so many other species. And they will chop them up into little pieces, which of course is like 17 foot long boards, float them down river, take them out to the Trans-Amazon Highway where they're supposed to be regulated. And then that's where the illegal stuff happens because they will get false documents saying that this was legal timber. And then once mm. it gets out of the region and shipped off to, you know, to Lima, no one in the, in the big city knows the difference between legal wood, illegal wood. It has the stamp, maybe underneath it, there's something, it doesn't matter. No one's going to sit there and haul, you know, 100, 200 kilo pieces of, of timber, you know, off a truck to check this. You don't have the manpower for that. Not to mention that it would be dangerous to actually check these where you, you we, we've been to the places where these trucks park at night and you don't want to be caught there. Um, you get the sense that you're in a place that you don't, you don't belong and you will not survive long. And so mm -hmm. there is a, there is a moment where you switch from the jungle to the market. And at that moment comes the change where it's the illegal becomes falsely legal and then gets shipped out and then, you know, goes out. To, onto the onto the ships and to to whoever's buying it at, at IKEA or wherever. But I suppose my question is then, how do you still protect your land when so many of these practices are illegal? Uh, for our land is is when and exactly like you said, people come from anywhere, and because it's such a massive open wilderness, they can come, and pretty much without any pushback, they can pretty much walk into the rainforest, start cutting, harvest as much as they can, sell as much as they can with, with absolutely nothing. Because even if you were to go to the city, inform the police, they won't care. They'll say there's too much illegal timber. Mm -hmm. You know, this, we, have, we have real problems right here in the city. We're not leaving. Okay, but no, this is someone's land and we need help. You got to come out and they'll say, well, we don't have budget to hire a boat and three days worth of gasoline to make it out to this remote place where you're saying that somebody's cutting a tree. It seems so um, sort of amputated from what they feel is their responsibility. And so we mm -hmm. have to then take on that role of encouraging the law enforcement to come out with us, building a relationship with them, and then also working against the corruption because half the time that we bring the law enforcement out, They'll call the illegal cutters, let them know that we're coming, still take the payment from us, taking them out into the jungle, paying them for three days of work, which you're not supposed to pay the police, mm. have to pay the police or else they won't do anything. Um, and then so we finally, we rent a boat, motor, gasoline, food, lodgings, tents, all this, a boat driver, staff to take these people up there. And then when we get there, they're like, well, nobody's here. What can we do? And then we go, okay, we'll try again next week. But next week, they're just going to make the same call. And the bad guys will be gone by the time we get there. God. So you're saying that illegal logging can still happen on protected land. And yep. the next difficulty is that, you know, the legal protections that are meant to be in place, obviously, are being undermined as well by the same, you know, systems of corruption that are driving that illegal logging. Yeah. In fact, the forest department in the area, I'm not using specific names, but the, or the forest department where we work is... I think it was two years ago, a big report came out where they arrested half of the forestry department because they were literally giving land titles to illegal extractors from the inside. Yeah. It was so yeah, blatant. Yeah. So that literally the people hired to protect this land mm -hmm. were selling it to the people trying to, dest to destroy it. I mean, it just levels wild. that are shocking. And so, you know, for a conservation organization, for a bunch of local people and like my small team that are begging people from around the world for funds, we get this hard won funding and then spend, you know, $20,000 doing an operation upriver into the wilderness to try and get these illegal people only to find out 
that the call was made before we got there and they're all gone and everything was for nothing and start over again. Gosh, that's really difficult to hear. And just actually on a note, a few months ago, um, the I think it was the climate climate sort of change department um, in Papua New Guinea. A governmental office was raided by the f- government's own fraud squad um, for these same, you know, acts of corruption of of giving away land uh, titles and accepting bribes uh, from industry, essentially, mm-hmm. um, rather than doing their job and protecting the forest. Yeah. Um. So what? So what can be done then? I mean, if the problem is systemic, like what? What can be done? What would you like to see happen to conservation? Um. At this time, in this crisis. Oh, uh, a number of things. First of all, I mean, the corruption. The way to combat the corruption is is like just like everything else. Whenever bad things are happening, shine a light on it. I mean, you know, you need people. It's which is so interesting because a lot of times at the at where I'm at in my career, um, my inboxes are filled with messages from young people who are like, how do I get your job? And it's a very difficult thing to answer mm-hmm. because I'm like, first of all, you don't want my job. Second of all, yeah. the route I took is not the route that you should take. Next, I mean, I spent the first 10 years just barefoot walking around with the local people in the Amazon learning all of that prerequisite knowledge to then do what I do now with no guarantee of any sort. It's not a career. It was a, it was a, a calling. It wasn't a, so for most people, I'm like, don't do it. You're going to mess your life up next. Mm. You need people with a diverse skill set. And so it's like at this point, in order to do the work that we do, the funny thing is that the people don't realize everyone goes, oh, I want to be in conservation. So I'm going to study conservation biology. It's like, yeah, this isn't 1950. What you need to do is, you know, we need video editors. We need storytellers. We need web design lawyers. We need journalists. We need all the different people because we need people with the skills to go in and infiltrate those corrupt networks and expose them in a way that gets out and actually creates change. We need people. Yes, we need people to go and study the obscure species of bats in the ecosystem. But at the same time, I know scientists who have worked in the Amazon for 30 years describing the most incredible intricacies of the minutia of the, you know, single ecosystem types. How many acres have you actually protected? Hmm. Or have you just been writing papers on and on and on and on? Has it added to your own prestige? So, to me, I know people have gone down and made incredible documentary. I mean, I just, um, the, I work with an incredible, uh, conservancy in South Africa, this, this private game reserve called Buffalo Kloof, and they're doing controversial work with using some sustainable ethical hunting of like game species, like wildebeest and impala and things that would get hunted anyway, not like, not, not elephants and rhinos, but they use a sustainable ethical hunting of the smaller species to support the conservation of big endangered critical umbrella species like the elephants, the black rhinos, the white rhinos. Um, and, and they are using all kinds of, of alternative methods of, of creating wild spaces that can be protected that, that are completely outside the traditional mold of like, you know, study it, publish it, protect it. Like, okay, great. But, we're also living in a time when somebody could go down, you know, somebody could go on an expedition, film it, throw it up on YouTube. It can go viral. And all of a sudden you have the support to protect an entire river basin. We have to be thinking way outside the box because the things are moving so much faster now that, you know, saying, oh, there's 17 species of hummingbird that only live in this valley. And it's like, great. Well, tell that story in, an, in, a, in, a, compel- in a compelling enough way that people have to pay attention to. And that's really been... Mm. That's been my method. That's where I've seen. I mean, I, I just spent a year working on a grant committee, like sort of courting this grant that seemed to show interest, that liked having me come and give them talks, that was encouraging us like, yeah, 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 this is going to be great. And I had my whole team writing grant proposals and we submitted this grant and they were like, yeah, but it doesn't really fit into our criteria next. And they denied us the grant. It's like, well, fine. But then like going on Lex's podcast just got us enough donations in the last nine days to protect over 2000 acres of rainforest. And it's like, so where are we going to go? Am I going to sit there writing green mm. doing biological inventories? Or I just tell people stories and show them images and say, you understand how important this is. Now let's go do it. Um, so to mm. me, it's become, it's become action and activism over the slow plot. And, and in terms of, you know, 
what would I like to see change in conservation? Back to your question, I ramble. Um, <laughs> but um, first of all, one of the major problems is I've been doing this 17 years and guess what? Nobody pays you to be a conservationist. They pay you to be a doctor. They pay you to be a lawyer. They pay you to pay you to be a plumber. They even pay you to be an artist. Nobody will pay you to go and protect pretty trees and streams. So the fact that I know some of the most talented, passionate, hardcore, dedicated, psychotically motivated and inspiring people I've ever seen are in conservation out in the field, protecting the wildlife that we all care about, but, but don't actually spend the time to go protect. These people are out there working. They're some of the poorest people I know. And they're some of the smartest, most brilliant, incredible field biologists and activists and conservationists you could imagine. Nobody's paying them. So, I mean, you know, how do you make a, a field competitive, make the pay competitive? Mm. Other things that I'm toying with the idea of doing is setting up some sort of a massive conservation endowment where we support the work of, of conservationists who are already out in the field. I mean, I can, I can rattle off nine or 10 names right now, people that I am in awe of, people that are absolutely inspiring to me who do field work that I think is some of the most incredible work I've ever seen. Um, and I would love to, to bring the resources to them so that they could also have things like, you know, food, shelter, health insurance, the basics, you know, not just earn as much as a teacher at least. Um, so that's one thing that's ma majorly missing from conservation, as well as the fact that we have entire political campaigns where nobody mentions ecosystems whatsoever. We're so mm. just don't vote ecologically. You know, we're in the U.S. We'll have entire presidential debates and they'll talk about Mexican immigration and abortion, Mexican immigration and abortion, the latest war, the latest war, the latest war. And then when they do get around to the environment, it's climate change, which is incredibly divisive and drives me crazy because half the country says, I don't believe in it. And half the country says the world is changing and Florida is going underwater. We're all going to die. And, and it's, it's very difficult to, to sort of pin it down. And everybody sort of starts disagreeing on what to do next, which is why I tend to stay in the realm of you cannot, you cannot argue with the fact that our ocean fisheries are crashing. Nobody can argue with that mm -hmm. our data. You cannot argue with the fact that we've lost 50% of the species on earth, not 50% of the species. 50% of the wildlife that was on the planet in terms of quantity mm -hmm. has diminished. You can't argue with that, that we're losing rainforests, that, that, that rivers are being dense. These are tangible things that anybody that wants to argue with me on them, I'm like, get on a plane, come with me, I'll grab them by the collar, walk them out into the Amazon and go, prove me wrong now. Come stand in the, in the flames with me. And so if you want to talk about climate change, you can, somebody could win on me and go, you know, well, you, you're not a climate scientist. You don't know what the models predict in my models that were funded by Halliburton say that, and I was like, well, great. I don't care. This has now become, you know, exponentially removed from the truth. I care about on the ground. I can prove to you that this river is important and we can save it. That's all I know. That's all I care about. So I try to keep things incredibly analog simple. Um, but yeah, so the, the politically sort of focusing in on, on the things more more tangible goals for, for fixing the environment and how it affects us, to me, that would be a win. And then the other thing is that mm. paying the people that are in the field of conservation from indigenous activists to environmental journalists to people like me, like so many of my colleagues who are out, like, I mean, I have friends who are out in the field right now. Um, I work with an organization called VetPaw who they take United States post 9-11 war veterans who have learned security and tactical policing and they use that to protect endangered critically endangered black rhinos herds of elephants in South Africa from poachers and so you're taking a skill set and you're putting them there they're out there every day driving around making sure that these animals are safe that's what they mm -hmm. do and they rely on donations to do it you know I, I have I'm right now I'm in Bangalore India and I know conservationists who are working to protect river ecosystems and migrating elephants and literally the, the, the riparian flora that only grows on the banks of certain rivers. And it's like, these are people who committed their entire lives to this, whether or not they're going to get paid to do it, they're going to be there doing it. It's like, you have brilliant minds doing incredible work that we all benefit from and, and, and there's no support system for that. So 
Yeah. And the whole system of um, sort of action is pretty fractured as well at the moment. So conservation of, of, you know, species and conservation of specific environments is so, is so critical. It's so key, but so is, you know, the people that extrapolate and talk about, you know, the systemic issues that are forcing that, yeah. um, like and the people then that, that bridge those gaps and yeah, trying to sort of like, trying to color in how our ideology is really sort of the driving force of the destruction of reality of our physical reality of our physical vitality yeah. I think I think really is key yeah Paul my final question for you is who would you like to platform I would probably go with the uh the reserve owners in South Africa because I think that the work that they're doing is so groundbreaking and so out of the box and so passionate um yeah, I would probably say the 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 founders of Buffalo Kloop, which is the private game reserve. I mean, they're having tremendous res results um, protecting endangered black rhinos, white rhinos, elephants, zebras, wildebeests, giraffes, and of course, you know, a million smaller things that exist under the the big headline animals like this. Um, they're doing some really incredible work and working with veterinarians and conservationists across the whole Eastern Cape to protect those areas. Um, I mean, then across the Amazon, there's so many incredible conservationists. Um, I could give you a list, um, but off the top of my head, definitely them because because what they're they've they've really put a lot of thought and care and decades into beginning this incredible conservancy of absolutely massive important life. And the thing that hits me with the African wildlife is, you know, in the Amazon, you're dealing with the destruction of the ecosystem and the trees, and that's leading to the loss of biodiversity in Africa. It's this very, very vicious targeting of individual animals. You know, a mother black rhino shot with her baby at her side. And before she's even dead, they're in hacking the horn off of her face to sell it to people that falsely believe that rhino horn is medicine. It's horrific. And we're on the brink of losing a species because of a misconception and a black market. And these people have taken a stand against this and have figured out a way to actually start notching winds in the other direction and actually start protecting these species and that is powerful it would be an interesting debate <laughs> for sure yeah i'll reach out to them paul thank you so much for your time today oh thank you so much for having me on appreciate it if you want to learn more i've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.